0: Hi, I'm Alistair Yu, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Myra Jones-Taylor, a Class of 2022 National Fellow. Myra is an expert in early childhood and family economic security policy. She was Connecticut's founding commissioner of early childhood, where she created the nation's most comprehensive cabinet-level state agency focused on young children and their families. She's currently the chief policy officer at zero to three. So congratulations again on your acceptance this year, Myra. To start, can you tell me more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with it this year?
1: Thanks, yeah, you know, I have been working on this issue, thinking about childcare and the way we talk about it, the way we think about it, and in particular the the women, predominantly women, who provide the care uh, for almost two decades now. And so, I'm really hoping to get this story out um, from the perspective of the women who provide the care uh, in the context of all of these, this kind of this major shift in the way we talk about child care, the way we think about the actual work that is happening and what's happening with young children. So, and this is all happening at a time, right, when child care has received unprecedented um, national attention because of the COVID pandemic. So really hoping to get this story and this conversation out into the public discourse um, as we're really thinking about reshaping the care that children receive outside of the home and um, centering the women who provide it.
0: Right, So I have some questions to talk more about the project itself. But before I do so, I want to get a better sense of you and your background and what you bring to the table for you as you work on this book. So you have a, a long career in child care. You've researched providers at the local level, as well as looking at um, state-level policy issues. And so I'm curious about how you've seen child care and the discourse around a change throughout your career.
1: When I started researching childcare as an ethnographer, it was early 2000s. It was on the heels of some pretty significant shifts from the scientific community and from the kind of social science uh, community about childcare. So on the one hand we had scientists who were able to show what was happening in the brain of a developing child, showing MRIs and the difference between children who had received Nurturing early childhood experiences and children who had not had been really deprived of care and loving and basic needs. Uh, so there was this explosion of interest, what is happening in the develop, you know, the brain of a developing child, and recognizing that childcare providers are really critical in um, children's development. There is also this research that was coming out of economists like James Heckman, Nobel laureate, who showed that there's a return on investment in investing in childcare and all these things. All these kind of social science and science conversations are happening. And there's this recognition that, oh, wait a minute, this is not just babysitting. This is education. Uh, And there's a real shift in the way people, policymakers, started talking about the care that children receive outside of the home and the role of the childcare providers in shaping the development. And what happened was this hard pivot to thinking about it as education and these childcare providers as educators. And in that shift, there was um, a, a move away from care. Uh, there was this idea that, wow, this is academic, really. Like this, we, we have to think about this in terms of the same way we think about what happens in a to K-12 setting, but for younger children. And so there's a real focus on, um, there's this kind of push down uh, approach of what was happening for young children in preschool settings in particular, that it should look somehow more academic because there's this recognition that it's education. And there was a real kind of disregard and avoidance of anything that happened uh, for young children. So babies, um, you know, zero to three, what what was happening for the care of young children? Of course, over 60% of Babies, you know, one-year-olds are in non-parental care during the day. So it's not like young children weren't receiving childcare, um, but that was too messy because there wasn't a way to frame it as education. And so there's a real kind of oh, we'll get to that later. Let's just talk about this as an education and let's talk about it in terms of childcare. So there's this real tension that was happening in the field. What are we calling this? What does it do? Who's it who should be doing the work? And there was this sense that care was this kind of a four-letter word. Now that we know this isn't just babysitting, we can't call it care. We have to call it education. And there's a sense that education was more um, respectable, was more worthy of investment and care not so much. Fast forward to where we are now, you know, in 2021, and in the midst of this pandemic, and there has been a real shift to reframe this work and embrace care embrace the term care, um, and, and see this as part of a broader care economy, if you will. Um, so there's there's been this massive shift in, in, in thinking about the care, the way we talk about it, but really what it means for those folks on the ground who are providing it has also
0: really shifted. So you mentioned the current situation with regard to COVID and child care today. Can you talk us through the top two or three issues that were most affected by the pandemic as it relates to child care?
1: Yeah, you know, we already had a critical shortage of childcare across this country, where fifty percent of all families live in childcare deserts. This is pre-pandemic. The pandemic comes and just you know exacerbates that challenge. Really makes this a crisis, and it's a twofold crisis. If you think about the fact that childcare providers are business owners, right? So when they close their doors, they that affects the people they employ. But unlike a restaurant owner or someone else who had to close their doors in a pandemic, and don't get me wrong, that was devastating to communities to have those businesses closed. But when a restaurant closes, it doesn't affect the community's ability to get to work, right? What happened when a childcare provider closed their doors? They had to um, let go of their workforce, but they also um, affected the people who relied on them to get to their jobs. And so it was this double whammy effect and we're seeing that the you know the results of that uh, ripple out throughout the country.
0: So through your work with the state of Connecticut and also in your current role with Zero to 3, you've done a tremendous amount of work advocating that early child care should be considered a public good. So I'm curious if you can talk about how that reframing actually helps the situation with regard to the conversations of childcare in America, but also your thought process with regard to actually pushing that reframing.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting if you think about the fact, I think a helpful analogy for people is to think about what happened to public schools in the pandemic. There have been articles after articles about written about uh, the challenges that schools were facing. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this was not a huge challenge. But no one was writing about the total collapse of the public school system, the way that story after story has been written about the real threat of the collapse of the childcare system and that is because we have invested in public education K to 12 education as a public good we made that decision as a society you know over 100 years ago what we are saying now is that decision it's long overdue that we apply that same logic to childcare and we we've seen the effects of that that when we didn't invest in child care as a public good uh, people can't get to work. The entire system collapses because we know that this is a critical component of families, you know, well-being, that this is something that they rely on and that children rely on for their healthy development.
0: And so your research and your previous work, you really address this issue of finding adequate educators and caretakers to tend to young children, and that there's a shortage. And you mentioned that earlier in this conversation. So can you talk about why that's the case, and even how you plan to address that issue uh, with regard to your project, and and to help make others more aware of this shortage. So it's fascinating to think about
1: this push to professionalize the childcare workforce in the context of the other shifts that I mentioned that were happening around the reframing of childcare, and there is this notion that okay, if we're saying this is not babysitting, then what is it? Is it if it's if we're saying it's education, well, then these providers need to be part of the professional class. And the only way to be part of the professional class, there are kind of three things you think about when you think of professionalizing a workforce. There's education, um, you know degree attainment in this case. There's this public recognition that this work is part of it's been elevated to part of the professional class of work. And then the, the third is wages and salaries should raise up, right? If you're a professional, then you were you worthy of higher wages. What has happened in the childcare, the professionalization of childcare, is really only the first. There's been this real push to say, okay, all childcare providers need to get a bachelor's degree, um, ideally a master's degree. And you've had women who have busted their butts to do this, making serious professional and family sacrifices along the way to make that happen. But the recognition has not come along with that, nor have the increased wages and salaries. And not only that, but the only, there's a, a slim group of people who can actually afford to do that. This is a, this is a workforce that is predominantly women of color who have all kinds of other barriers to getting access to higher education that is going to allow them you know to work and go to school and so we're we're also seeing the whitening of this workforce uh, in a way that's really uh, potentially I mean I just think incredibly damaging um, to the care that children will receive so it's this, it's this fascinating tension that's happening and on the other hand you have prefe- you know you have women who are like I want to be seen as professional I am happy to get a bachelor's degree but I cannot make ends meet in this current situation. So there's this real push and pull that's happening in the workforce right now that it's it's really um, important that we get underneath it and understand what's at stake.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to kind of draw on that theme a bit more. And as you said, at least currently, the vast majority of early childcare providers are women of color, yet these women are not in positions of leadership to the same degree, and are not really at the table when policy conversations are happening. So I'm curious about your take to that statement. But secondly, how do you hope to advocate for women who find themselves in this position?
1: Historically, this has been a field that, you know, going back to slavery, right, thinking about uh, Black and brown women caring for, white women in that case, caring for children. And it has been If you you layer on racism, you layer on uh, gender inequality, this has been a field that has been ignored, has been belittled. And at the same time, we say they're doing the most important work. It's this this crazy mind meld, not mind meld, this is gymnastics that are happening in people's minds. This is so important. We love you. Thank you so much. And we're going to continue to think. That we can pay you low wages because you're doing this out of the goodness of your heart. And what I try to show is that really telling the stories of, of women of color in particular who are not at the table. I mean, it's rare to see uh, black and brown women who are leading the conversation at the state and national level. I was definitely one of a handful. I mean, you think Barbara Bowman, you know, so she founded Erickson Institute decades ago. She was A leader in this, but there are very few women of color who have been at the table pushing for these um, for these changes or really saying, "like this is going to be the impact." And so, what I'm trying to do with this book, after my years of ethnographic research in communities, and then as a leader, the person who then had to um, apply some of these policies to uh, communities, I, I really try to show, on the one hand, the importance of having. Uh, women of color and leadership. The fact that I, um, my family story is one where my mother, I was expelled from childcare because we were poor. Um, And then you flip over and I I had privilege. I was able to afford childcare, um, but was still talking to women who were really grappling with these challenges. I brought my personal story I brought all of this, the stories of the women that I um, met with over the years in my role as a state leader for this system. And we made some decisions to say, you know what, we're not, I know the impact this is gonna have on black and brown communities, and we're not going to do it. We're actually gonna swim against the tide of what um, was the prevailing kind of public rhetoric and policy agenda for childcare. And that comes from, I argue that that is because I am, I was a leader who had lived experience with lack of childcare, Uh, and really connected to women who had that experience. And so this is all to say, I think it's really important when we think about who is in leadership positions, that they have a real connection to the work and, and understand what's truly at stake.
0: No, you've said that very beautifully. And and actually is a great pivot to my next question about the book itself. And to your point, you said you hope to include your own personal story, but the story of your mother as a single mother, right? Raising you. So what role do these more personal stories play in framing your subject matter for you as you think about the book and the narrative?
1: I was trained as an ethnographer to always be attentive to what my person, what I brought to the story, what I brought to the issue personally. I think there is before this idea that objectivity is is important and that you can't bring yourself into it. And and we know that that's just not the case. We know we always bring ourselves into the research even if it's, you know, crunching numbers, whatever. I really lean into that because I think it's important to be able to make that connection. So people see the connection between everyday lives and policies and how they are lived and the consequences of of policies that are Uninformed and don't are not attentive to the needs of those who are directly affected by it. So I really lean into um, the personal story. And you know, you think about how decisions are made on the Hill, the White House. I mean, they're constantly right now in the middle of all this advocacy saying, We need stories, give us stories, tell us about what's happening on the ground. And so, what I hope to do with this book is to do just that tell the stories of what is really happening. Uh, So people understand that these are not neutral decisions. They have real life consequences, and we have to be attentive
0: to them as we make policy. So from 2013 to 16, you served as the first ever commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. And I believe it was only one of four agencies of that type um, in the country. And so what were some of the challenges that you found in leading this new agency, and how did you work through them?
1: Oh, my goodness. There were so many. It was an incredible opportunity. And here I am, this young Black woman. I was the youngest woman in the governor's cabinet. I was one of a handful of people of color. Uh, I was the only person who had young children, the only woman who had young children at home. So that in and of itself was just, it was a lot. But there were all kinds of, you know, there, there was once this real interest in creating this new agency. So I was you know, part of the team that created, actually created an agency, government agency from the start. And there was a lot of push. There was a lot of people trying to um, influence what they thought this should be um, down from the name. I mean, the fact that it's called the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood instead of the Connecticut Department of Early Childhood was because I had uh, a white man who was furious. Uh, This is a much longer story, but was Um, really assuming that this agency was going to be folded into his department. And the governor decided not to do that. And this man threw a fit, essentially, and was able to take it down a notch. And so it would not be called an office. It would not be called a department. It would be called an office. Although in legislation and everything else, it was exactly the same. Um, So there are all kinds of little things like that that happened that I just had to put my head down. I was initially wasn't even called a commissioner. Um, You know, so there was this, these subtle ways of kind of keeping me, putting me in my place um, and putting early childhood in its place. It was this sense that early childhood is, is a lesser issue. And so I bring a lot of that kind of what it means to advocate for young children, what it means to be a woman of color doing this work. I bring that story um, to this conversation and that's, that's minor, you know, then there's just all the other work of, Doing start, I like to say I did startup in government and bringing together a new culture and really making the case for why this was so important. It, it was an incredible ride, but um, you know I still have the the battle scars in um, in some ways because it was it was not easy.
0: So it seems like child care is having a moment right now in a really good way with the Biden administration committing forty billion dollars in child care assistance as part of the COVID relief plan. So I'm curious about how you'd like to see policymakers capitalize on this moment and on that impact of what $40 billion could mean. What would be your advice to policymakers in terms of being able to see that impact long-term versus short-term?
1: So the $40 billion is a down payment, and it was incredible. I mean, it was the reason why we did not have that total collapse of childcare At 100%, we would have seen a much Starker set of realities if that had not happened, but we know it costs more than that. So we have been advocating. um, You know, childcare advocates have been pushing to say it's it's at least that every year. So um, as we're building out this plan, this goal to have at least four hundred billion dollars in childcare and early learning across the board, it's out of the recognition that this is the first step to creating this as a real public good. We have to know we can no longer assume that parents can bear the brunt of this. Um, so something I say often is, you know, parents cannot afford to pay any more for child care and child care providers cannot afford to be paid any less. And so we have to see this as a real public investment. So that's one. The other is that we have to make sure that our child care providers, our early educators have the compensation, have the benefits that they need to make this their job, their only job. So many child care providers work on the weekends. They work multiple jobs um, during the week. And it's taking away from their ability to do their best on the, you know, in their job and also just who they are as human beings, whether or not they have a family, just their own well-being. So that's two. And the other is that this has to be quality. We cannot just assume that you know, we put adults in the same room with children and then it'll be fine. We need to have our child care providers have the training and the skills that they need to provide that care, and that we have these beautiful settings for young children that are uh, steeped in what we know is best about child development, that it is play based, that it is truly um, uh, an environment that's worthy of all of the incredible brain development that is happening in young children's um, bodies.
0: <laughs> Time. So, as you embark on your fellowship this year, where do you hope to be with your book project a year from now?
1: I hope to be done. (laughs) Um, You know, I've been thinking about these issues for so long and I've written most of this book already. And so, really being able to contextualize it in the current moment, I think that's very important. To go back to some of the women I spoke with, I think is also really important. I I do want to say that just last night I learned that an incredible woman who is features very really prominently in in this book. Just passed away um, from about with ovarian cancer, and so I carry her story um, with me. I um, I love her dearly, and I think about her and all these other women that have done so much for children, for women, for their communities. And so I want to do this for them. I want this book to to resonate and to really hold up. Uh, the importance of their work so that we we are not talking about this same crap 50 years from now.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry to hear about her passing um, and certainly your desire to honor her in this way and to really make sure this book kind of does her story justice as well as for so many other women too who really give back to our world and our community in this way is really is really powerful so really thank you for doing that and you know we're very thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape um so thank you for your time today Myra
1: oh my goodness thank you I'm just so honored to have been chosen I mean um it, this is such an honor and I'm, I'm really excited to to get this uh, out into the world so thank you for your support
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org slash fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.